Welcome to Career Kings, hosted by Chirag Tasker and Jason Spencer, the podcast dedicated to helping you start, accelerate, and dominate in your careers. So, Chirag, tell me about yourself. Well, thanks for asking, as a lot of who I am personally certainly affects who I am professionally. At my core, I think I'm an opportunist. I've moved to and lived in a number of different cities in the country, always for career opportunities or higher education. Now I've lived in the north, south, east, west, midwest. That includes by a lake, on an island, in the desert. Um, So I've been kind of all over the place. I've uh, even traveled to over 30 countries, which I've really enjoyed. And I've been really impressed with how adventurous I've been and, and really enjoyed that part of my life. In general, I mostly spend time with friends and family, playing, watching sports. I read a lot online about a variety of topics. Currently learning how to effectively trade in the stock market. And uh, I play poker regularly with a group of friends. I uh, studied electrical engineering uh, initially in undergrad and worked in the field long enough to learn that technology wasn't really my passion. More than any specific engineering concept, I learned how to really struggle with concept to really understand something well and how to then apply it somewhere else. Working in the defense industry, I learned how to motivate and lead teams, processes, overall project management, which has really proved valuable in future roles and I think will certainly be valuable in the role we're talking about today. Then consulting helped me get a lot more exposure in a variety of industries and business problems and also a certain intense degree of rigor and thought behind everything I work on and each deliverable I submit. And that's really helped me differentiate myself from others as I've progressed in my career. And I've learned so much in starting and growing my consulting firm that I feel like I'm getting a second MBA sometimes. The most valuable way I've developed in that role is how to think outside the seemingly rigid constructs of business. Ultimately, I just think that I value experiences and accomplishment. And at a high level, that mentality will also make me a really effective leader in your organization. Great. So let's take a moment and discuss Shrog's answer uh, to that question. And in my experience, I would say a lot of people answer this in multiple different ways. And I think the big mistake that most people make is they don't prepare for a question like this. When the question has some personal attributes about it, people are more likely to just wing it. What I feel like is when when they wing it, they talk without purpose. And it's a lot of fluff talk. And what I think you did here, Sharag, is you spoke with purpose and you added pieces of the fluff. Um, So it wasn't just a boring, dry, ingenuine answer. Everything you said had some purpose from, and I'm sitting here writing notes, as most interviewers do, uh, when you talk about you moved to different cities, but mostly for career. To me, as an interviewer, I'm thinking, okay, this person is flexible, and they would willing to travel and get out there and adventurous. You gave a light overview of your of your work background, which was good, and then you brought it back, everything back to the job and, and the value you can add. So. From there, I thought it was a very solid um, answer. Yeah, thanks. I think, you know, truth be told, I spent a little bit of time 
thinking about and preparing how I would like to answer that question. And that's not cheating. Everybody should prepare for this type of question. This question in my mind is different than a walk me through your resume type of question. This is specifically when they say, tell me about yourself. They're saying, I don't want the, the granular, chronological, discrete task on your resume walkthrough. I want you to tell me about yourself as a whole, which means both professionally and personally. So, you know, when I answer the question, I try to give a little bit insights in my personal life. I try to give a little bit of insights into my professional life, but at a high level. But in a way, you said purposeful, but yeah, in a way that, you know, matters because ultimately I really feel like if I'm in an interview, anytime I open my mouth is an opportunity for me to sell myself. And I want to, in this answer, A, sell myself, but B, create some kind of connectivity to the interviewer. For example, when I say I've lived in the Northeast, South, and West, it usually wouldn't trigger someone to say, oh, where in the North did you live? I used to live in Boston or something like that. And maybe we have some connectivity or maybe they like to play poker too or maybe they ask me about what I read online or, or something like that. So I'm hoping that one of the things I say triggers some commonality and we can connect as, a, as an interviewee and interviewer. And I'm hoping that I'm also selling myself for the role at the same time. So that's kind of the purpose that I went through. Yeah, I like that there. Because if you really do this correctly, you'll end up getting the interviewer to tell you about themselves. Right, exactly. You know, once they find find that connection point, like you said, oh, I'm from Boston, you know, where and then when they start telling you about themselves, you really... You're winning, yeah. You you know, you're hitting the home run there. And and I think it's important for people to know uh, you have to assess your situation and how they ask this question. If you're both walking through the door to their office Mm -hmm. and they're saying, hey, Chirac, tell me about yourself. I wouldn't go in the direction you just did there. Sure. You know, I that's more of the fluff talk and, you, you know, you're talking a little bit more about family and just small talk as you're walking to the interview table. But if you're sitting down and they look you in the eyes and it it's an official like an interview question, interview question, you best believe yeah. you need to talk with some purpose. And I have sat with numerous people who go too far on the non-purposeful talk of, of family and hobbies and things of that nature. And they don't realize every time you open your mouth in an interview, that's your chance to sell yourself to get that job. So whatever you say, do it in a way that positions you better for that job. Agreed. All right, well, that was good. I hope that Starting off each podcast here with a a live interview question, if you will, that we answer and break down and talk about will help all our listeners think about and prepare when they they do it themselves. But let's pivot now and talk about what we wanted to talk uh, as per the main kind of conversation topic for this second episode. Uh, And that's a difficult conversation. And it's around how do you really choose the right career for yourself? I remember thinking as a 17-year-old, how do I choose what career path I should go down. It didn't seem like the, you know, we didn't have access back then to all the information around a multitude of jobs. And even as you're graduating college or you're maybe even eight years into your career, you still have an opportunity to pivot or define how your career, the trajectory of your career is going to go. And how should people think about that? I mean, it's, it's more complex than just where your strengths are, if you're naturally mathematically inclined or naturally science or naturally, um, you know, verbal strong, I think there's a little bit more deeper than that that people need to think about. And so I wanted to just engage in our fireside chat, if you will, about how you know people would, if we were guiding our our children one day or something of that nature, how should they think about what career is the right one for them? Or you know, we learned that you often pivot your career six, seven times in, over your lifetime. 
but it's still valuable to kind of think about where, what direction you want to go. So I wanted to engage in the conversation with you, Jason, about how someone should think about that. And, and what are your thoughts? How did you think about your career and what path you want to go and how you define that when you were in high school versus college and, and beyond? Yeah, I, I think the first thing someone needs to do is put a stake in the ground and choose. And you can choose knowing that you may pivot at one point, but I think more often than not, people just fall into what they fall into. So I, I think the first step is is to just put a stake in the ground and choose, um, sure. choose something. The way I approach it and look at it is, I just want to be in a ballpark. So that's right. what I do. Like I, I look at career choice in very broad strokes. I sure. don't get so specific that it's a hit or miss type of scenario. So when I say broad strokes, and I'll take myself for example, I always knew I wanted to be in business and I always knew I wanted to be in marketing. I really liked marketing, advertising, things of that nature. But I also wanted to do something cool. So that's how I started my thought process around choosing a career, marketing something cool. And literally that's what I looked at and there's plenty of things that fall under that, whether it's sports, entertainment, a certain product or, or things of that nature. But the moral of the story or my strategy rather was more so getting the ballpark of trying to find a way to market something cool and you don't have to be so caught up on the exact particulars of, oh, I need to work for the NBA or I need to work for Coca-Cola or something like sure. that. It's, it's more you're, you're looking at industry and category of field. Yeah, I think I thought when I was in my late high school years, I didn't have that much exposure to a lot of jobs. You know, in, in, in my community, it often seemed like based on your strengths, you're either going to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, and I didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer, so I was an engineer, right? So, and that's probably not the best way to plan your career, but I do agree with the sentiment you're saying that you essentially want to try to be directionally correct, but the truth is the earlier you can figure out what it is you want to do, the, the more uh, stronger you can point yourself in that direction. Um, and I know people that knew they wanted to be a doctor when they were a teenager, and so from day one, they were doing everything they needed to do to, to graduate from medical school and finish their residency and become a practicing physician. And certainly was a very targeted approach to their career. And then you have other folks like us that we're doing something today, we could be doing something completely different 10 years from now or five years from now, and I'm okay with that. But I think a lot of folks need to think about not just what you're good at, but where you're past your strengths and weaknesses and interests, but thinking about market supply and demand. Now, I know that when I was younger, I didn't have a whole lot of insights in the world, but I kind of decided when I was in the late 90s and I was looking at college and I said, I think the world is going to be driven by technology advancement and globalization. And so a lot of what I positioned myself to get my degree and work for five years and get my MBA was focused on the idea that those are the things that are going to move in the world. I think you also got to think about you know, what your expectations are in terms of educational rigor and length. Do you want to be in school for eight years to be a doctor? Or do you want to go to school for two or four years and get a job and start making some money and, and work your way up? And there's people in the CEO roles right now that went the former way and there's people that went the latter way and there's no right or wrong. You gotta determine what your expectations are in terms of educational rigor and length of, of schooling. That's a good point. I think too many people choose a career based on job type or actual job. And that's the only metric. 
How about you look at these other metrics where you say you're choosing a career based on number of hours worked per week, mm-hmm. education level, how much time you could spend with your family, how much sure. travel is involved. So, And then using all those different metrics to kind of back into a category as opposed to being so bent on, I'm going to pick a specific industry and job type. And I think that's what we're taught to do. Like, hey, you need to choose if you want to be an engineer or if you want right. to be a doctor or a pharmacist, rather saying, choose what lifestyle you want, how much money you want to make, what you're willing to put in to get to that point, and then that you jumble all that up and put it into, into a, you machine. Know, a machine mm-hmm. and it spits out yeah. a, a career for you. And I think we need to start doing it a little bit more that way than just I agree. jumping right into it. I agree. And I know this isn't specifics telling someone what to do. It's more of a conversation. But I think too often think, oh, I want to work in marketing. but Or a lot of people say, I want to be a CEO of a company one day. Well, you know what that really means? It really means maybe you're not going to be as present of a father in your children's life one day uh, because you're going to be traveling and have board meetings and, ex- and delivering, you know, Wall Street expectations that has a lot of demand and stress. Maybe you didn't think that through. Maybe Or maybe you did think it through. Maybe it is what you wanted. But maybe you got to think about the types of challenges you're going to be attacking in your career or what type of stresses or demands or work days or hours. I know that you and I have worked in careers. We work six days a week. I've worked in jobs where I worked 80 hours a week. That was fine early in my career, but as I get in deeper in my career, I don't know that I want to work 80 hours a week anymore. And I have certain expectations of what I can do in the other part of my life, not the work side of my life. And so that lifestyle expectation plays a, a big role. And, and no one talks about enough about compensation. At the end of the day, you may have a, a vision of what your lifestyle looks like when you're 30, 40, 50 years old. And if you didn't choose a career that enables that type of lifestyle, that was probably a little bit short-sighted. And so you got to put all these variables, not just strengths and weakness and interests, but all these variables in the machine uh, to start to think about how to get, as we both alluded to, directionally correct in in figuring out where you're going to go. Yeah, I think that's important. It starts with directionally correct. Don't just focus on job type and industry. Focus on other lifestyle attributes, hours, work, conversations, so on and so forth. And be willing to be open-minded and do some research sure. in, into this. I think that's another thing that we don't do enough is research different type of careers and industries. I, I know we had a conversation before speaking about going into the medical industry and, and being a doctor, and we both thought growing up all doctors were pretty much kind of working around the clock, working around the no clock, life outside of work, no life outside of work. They got paid heavily, but you had no life, and you had to study. You know, being sold for a hundred years, yeah. so on and so forth. But once you do a little bit of research, you realize there are different types of doctors and professions across the medical industry yeah. where you don't need to work a hundred hours or you don't even need, sure. the, you know, 10 years of schooling. But it does require the research. Yeah. And I'd say, uh, just to kind of wrap up the conversation a little bit, I would say if I could go back in time, I would have liked to have advised my younger self to do a little bit more outreach. I could have reached out more to friends, family. Today's world, you can hop right on LinkedIn and find someone in a a couple of different jobs. And I think if if someone reached out to me, a stranger, a high school kid reached out to me and said, hey, can I ask you what it's like to do the the work you do and what your lifestyle is and what type of business challenges you face? 
I would take that call and I would give advice and I would give learnings of what my career, I can speak to what I do, but not everybody else. And I hope that individual would reach out to other people in other jobs and you can probably get a lot more robust view of what different jobs do from doctor to accountant, to engineer, to entrepreneur, to business analyst, to senior vice president, to project manager. I mean, you can get a lot of idea of what people do, what the challenges are what they enjoy of their role, what they don't enjoy about their role. And then you can do separate research today in today's world and get a very clear idea of what type of compensation levels are associated with those roles. And then you merge that with your interests, strengths, opportunities, and probably get a lot better of a idea of how to point yourself in that right direction. Yep. All right, I want to introduce our guest for today's episode. Eddie, thanks for being here with us today. Eddie's a good friend of the podcast and is currently in a senior pricing and analytics role at Delta, an interesting place to work, obviously. So thanks, Eddie, for being here today. Why don't we get right to it? Why don't you tell us about your role at Delta? What are your goals and, and what makes it interesting? So I work in revenue management development at Delta. And specifically, I work with Delta's partners around the world. You can think of us as a consulting team to Delta's partners. So we try to help Delta's partners, a lot of them who are much smaller than us and have fewer resources, find ways to improve their pricing and revenue management processes. Cool. So did you land at this job or do you think you were purposeful in arriving here? So it's kind of a funny story. Back in 2010, when I was finishing my MBA at Georgia Tech, Delta came to recruit uh, on campus. And at the time, nobody wanted to work in the airline industry as the industry had spent a couple of decades destroying billions of dollars of value. But there was a, a senior vice president from Delta that came in and he offered free pizza and a couple of free flights to anyone who'd come listen to him talk. He told us about how the industry was gonna turn around and how Delta was gonna become the leading carrier in the United States. And he really laid out a compelling plan for the airline to build value, both through improving the network, improving our partnerships around the world, improving the quality of our service, improving the reliability. And it just spoke to me. And, and the one thing he said that really got me interested was that every day we fight for every dollar in this industry. And that really spoke to me. And from then on, I basically totally changed my career plans. So this was a disruption. It He made you think about this as a possible career opportunity versus you purposely trying to land in pricing analytics or in the, the airline industry. Yeah, this is not at all what I had been working towards. I had been working towards brand management and I was trying to land jobs in a CPG company like P&G or Nestle. And all of a sudden, this just kind of fell out of nowhere. And I thought, hey, let's give it a try. And did your prior work experience set you up for this? It did. My prior work experience was a lot of work with data. And so Delta is a very data-rich company where decisions are made using data. And so the fact that I had that background gave me a little bit of an advantage and that I was able to, to work with that data and sift through it pretty easily. In that pre-MBA, you worked as a database administrator, so you secured that part of, of the data administration and now you're using that data. Yeah, so I went from somebody who was building the data to somebody who was using the data, but it still gave me a leg up to really be able to understand the sources and technical components and where the data comes from and how it's built. Got so, it. So you mentioned how this SVP really um, struck a chord with you in his speech and, and also your prior experiences lended well to this type of industry, but what really attracted you to Delta? Was it just that speech or once Delta got on your radar, was it more the brand name, the flight perks or something else? What was the real attraction outside the speech once it was put on your radar? There are some obvious things about working for an airline that make it really cool, like the flight benefits. And because of that, I've gotten to travel to a lot of places that I probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to do otherwise. 
So that's been really cool. But it was more about the culture and the fit. Delta was a company that was coming out of some really hard times. They'd been bankrupt in the mid-2000s. They had merged with another um, major carrier, Northwest Airlines. And they were really trying to find their way and become an industry leader. And it felt like a company where there was really a fight going on, a fight for survival, but also a fight to become leaders and a fight to really make something great and build a really good company. And I felt that everyone and everywhere I talked to, people were so passionate about what they were doing and they were so passionate about making Delta great that I just felt drawn to it. Well, that's great. So it was obviously more than money and job title. We spoke earlier that when choosing a career, you need to look a little wider than money or job title. And you've mentioned things like culture of the company, the lifestyle of being able to travel everywhere, all that yeah. plays into a decision. So tell me, Eddie, as a general manager in Delta, you're obviously interviewing for people on your team. Tell me about how you interview others what do you look for as an interviewer and how would someone successfully prepare for an interview with you? It's a little difficult to prepare for an interview. You need to be preparing sort of your whole life. I look for people that are intellectually curious and it's difficult to fake that because I start asking a lot of questions about your past experiences and what you've done and I like to dig deep and hear about not just what you accomplished but what was your specific accomplishment or contribution to any teams that you worked on and to get your opinions about things that you thought went really well and things that you thought didn't go well so I, you know and things that you did that you weren't asked to do so I really like to look deeply at what people have done interesting so let's flip it a little bit what would be top factors you would look for in identifying a job opportunity that's right for you the number one most important thing that I look at is who is my direct supervisor gonna be and who is the person above that because they make or break everything. Probably the second most important thing is working in an industry that you're really interested in. And the airline industry is a very interesting industry, but I think having a really creative and supportive and encouraging leadership team is so important. Otherwise it becomes hard to go to work every day no matter where you are. Sure. Makes sense. Well, that's all the time we have to say. I want to thank you for spending a little bit of time with us, and I'm sure our listeners appreciate uh, some of the information you provided us. Good luck. Thanks. Okay, so let's turn our attention to our quick fire question and answer round. I really enjoyed this round uh, from our first episode where we answer a series of questions back and forth between Jason and myself about um, not just interviewing, but just general questions that we've heard over the years about career advancement in general. And so the first question I have for you, Jason, is, what guidance do you have for interviewers in writing meaningful and effective thank you notes after an interview? Good question. I think first and foremost, definitely write a thank you note because it allows you to get another impression in the interviewer's mind. What I usually do in writing thank you notes is, one, I make sure I make some type of personal connection about the interviewer or unique connection to my interview. So whether they went in a little bit more detail on their marketing strategy or their future business plans or something like that, just something that was unique to your conversation, sure. definitely mention that in a way that you appreciate their insight into that. So that's one thing I do. Second, use this as a chance to address any concern you might have on yourself that you didn't get across properly or to ask them 
if they had any concerns with you and uh, give you a chance to, to address that. So they alluded to you that you might have been a little light in overall experience. Bring that up in a way where I know you mentioned I might be light in experience, but I just want to reiterate to you the speed in which I progressed through my previous yep. organizations and show I'm a fast learner, so, so on and so forth. So definitely bring that up. And then finally, just be pleasant and try to reach for some indication of follow-up. If, right. if they weren't clear on when the actual follow-up was, you know, just ask them, you know, I look forward to uh, hearing your response or do you know when I, I'll, I'll be able to hear a response, something to that nature? Sure, that's great. I think what I'm hearing mostly from you is a continuation from our first conversation today, which is be incredibly purposeful. Don't write a thank you note just to check a box. You're trying to accomplish something with this thank you note. Just to add one quick thought on my best practices from an administrative perspective, sometimes people ask me, should I write an email or should I send a or handwritten note? My best practices is you gauge a situation. If it's a phone interview, I'll send a quick email to thank them for their time and ask for next steps. If I have an in-person interview, I will often bring a thank you note half written to the interview with me. And on the way out, I'll sit in the lobby of the corporate office and finish the thank you note with the points that you made. And I'll leave it for the receptionist in the name of the person that I wanted to get to. So it gets there, not in snail mail, but it gets there later that day. And I found that that's a whole different level of a nice touch. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and remember, if you do the handwritten note, nice touch, be sure to include your email address sure. on that handwritten note Sweet. so they can quickly see it and reply to you in the moment. Good point. So, Sharab, how do I address an underperforming employee? That's a really tough question. I know that you and I both have had this type of challenge in our uh, past roles. And ultimately, I was reading something the other day and it kind of said, no one should ever be fired as a surprise. They should see it coming. They should be managed. I, I kind of have maybe a flaw in that I always like to work best with the hand I've been dealt. I always like to improve and work with the talent that I've inherited or hired and make them the best that they can be in the role. That doesn't mean that some people aren't right for the role. I think first you really need to determine why is the person underperforming? Is it because they're not skilled or experienced with the right abilities? Are they just doing a poor job? Are they distracted? Are they under-resourced? Are they under-tooled? Do we need to give them some skill set they don't already have so they can perform the job? And so a lot of that is important before you start to do the more pragmatic or progressive action, which is to put someone on a performance management plan and give them very, very clear understanding that they're underperforming. Give them very, very unambiguous expectations that you need them to meet and understand from them that they believe that they can meet those expectations and enough time to meet or exceed those expectations. And only if and when that continued to fail is you have to do what I hate to do, which is sometimes let people move on to roles where they're better positioned to succeed. Very, very good points. Jason, what's the best way to get noticed in a good way during a meeting? This is something that I feel a lot of people struggle with, getting noticed with being genuine. And I think it starts with one, preparation, going to every meeting extremely prepared on the content and just generally what's going on in your business. And then during that time, definitely speak up on the opportunities that you've discovered based on your preparation, but don't leave it just on opportunities. Close the loop with offering solutions. So you prepare 
you offer up opportunities and at the same time you offer up a solution so you're looking at someone who's just not a complainer you're looking at someone who's trying to solve some opportunities that people might not have even thought about because uh, they didn't do the preparation and research that you've done that's a really good point i notice there's always in every meeting there's the person on the team that says why everything won't work we've all worked with that individual and then there's the person in the meeting that always says here's how we can get this done and the person that's the mentality that here's how we figure out how to get this done, is always the person I see getting promoted and being in the, viewed in a positive light in the organization. How would you guide someone when answering a recruiter's question about desired salary? Wow, this is a really highly discussed, controversial kind of topic, and it's a really interesting one. Ultimately, a lot of career coaches tell you, you don't have to tell your former salary, right? When they ask you, a lot of recruiters or hiring managers say, what were you making in your former role? With the expectation that naturally that baselines us for what your new salary is going to be. And a lot of people don't want to be baseline based on their former salary. And it really depends on your personality type. If you're the type of person that feels comfortable saying something like, if you don't mind, I'd rather not talk about my former income level and talk about where we think my value is to this organization and figure out where I should be. You kind of pepper in a little language around, ultimately I'm sure that if we both think that I'm the right person to be valuable in this role, I'm sure compensation won't get in the way of us getting me in here to start being valuable, right? So they know that you're being reasonable. You also expect ultimately a salary that's reasonable and commiserate with the role. At the same time, you have to be willing to have that conversation. Well, I hear a lot of people give the advice, when discussing salary, you wanna give a range. Fifty to $75,000, for yeah. Yeah, I think example. Is that a good idea, or is it something that the recruiter or yeah. the hiring manager is just going to key on the lowest yeah. number you give in, in zero? I think you do want to give a range versus a point solution. However, this is a double-edged sword in that you better give a range where the bottom of that range is a number that you would accept. Obviously, there's multiple components of a compensation packet. Your benefits, your 401k, your PTO, your potentially long-term compensation, or stock units, or things of that nature. And so it's okay to acknowledge that the salary is one component of the total compensation. You should know what the range of the job probably is, and you should pick a range that you're looking for. You can say, based on other factors, I expect that I would be valued somewhere between X and Y. But X better be a number that, assuming all other parts of the compensation packet are commiserate, X better be a number that you're happy with. For example, yeah, I, if I someone says, X... I'm going to take a salary between you know, 80000 and 100000 and then two weeks later they're making you an offer for 85000 and you come back and say, hey, can you get me to 95000 They're going to say, what gives? You told me eighty to hundred, and I came in at eighty five, and you look kind of badly. Yeah, I think you're, when giving a range, you're low number should be your midpoint and your high should be your high because a lot of companies do this on the other end when they're giving salary ranges their low number is their low number but the high number is the midpoint and there's a whole it's a very good point and i totally agree same thing on the other i totally agree you want to make sure though that your low is within or slightly above the range you think the job is rated at Let's just say, for example, we're throwing random numbers out there, that the job is probably between seventy dollars and $80,000 job. And you say, well, I'm looking to make between one hundred and dollars Well, we're at impasse, right? If the job is probably, and you may not know this exactly, but it's probably a seventy dollars to $80,000 job, you could say, I'm looking to make somewhere between eighty-five dollars and $110,000, or eighty-five dollars and hundred. dollars And so if your low is slightly above their high, 
you're not at an impasse. That's my point. Yeah. And then one last key point I want to make here is there's a very valuable phrase I usually use at the end of a salary negotiation. After I say, this is the range I expect to be valued at, I ask this very key question in these exact words. I say, do you agree that that's reasonable? And it's very powerful because it forces that HR recruiter or that person to actually verbalize back to you. Yes, that seems about right. Or I'm not sure. If nothing else, you get a direct feedback. If, if you're saying something that's ludicrous, it forces them to tell you that. And if you say something that's very reasonable, it also forces them to say, yes, that's reasonable. I found a lot of success in my kind of salary negotiations. But without a second more of a pause, after I say my range that I want to be valued at, I say, do you agree that that's reasonable? And I found it to be pretty valuable. Jason, here's an interview question for you. What's so uniquely valuable about you that we should hire you into this senior marketing role into our organization? Thanks. Tune in next episode for the answer. Thanks for listening to Career Kings with hosts Chirag Tasker and Jason Spencer. Be sure to tune in to the next episode. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Career Kings and leave your questions, which we may answer on future recordings. Subscribe to our show where you normally get your podcasts or access them on soundcloud.com.